I think anybody who is being intellectually honest has to acknowledge that we still have racism in this country. There needs to be critical reform. That yeah. means hiring the best, training the best, and supervising the best people and holding them accountable. I'm good friends with uh, Ed Drain, chief of police for Plano. A better man you could never find to run that department. African-American, SWAT team trained, servant leader. I saw him on TV marching with the peaceful protesters and supporting that. And what a powerful message that sends to people who have not been treated fairly, who have been discriminated against, who have been racially profiled. The number of people that I think that abuse that badge are so, so small. And unfortunately, the rest of the people who are putting their life on the line, they get thrown in the mix. We need to develop a culture of not policing the community, policing with the community, calling out uh, officers who don't need to be officers and getting them out of that profession. Changes been too long coming for people that are oppressed. I plan to be there tomorrow night at the courthouse praying in solidarity with the, the people that are peacefully protesting. I think it's important that I be there as a judge because our Pledge of Allegiance ends with the three words, justice for all. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode number eight of Getting Live with Lyndall Keith. And today, today's guest, I thought it would be fitting with everything going on in our ever-changing society to have a, uh, a very honorable judge here on the show. The honorable, the honorable Judge Barnett Walker. I'm so glad that you could join me. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I love the, what you're doing and, I, and uh, the heart you put into your program. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. And you know, anybody that knows me, I have uh, quite the background with dealing with the, the system and, and courts and, you know, in and out of trouble and, and all these things. And, you know, in our, in our prior conversation, you had mentioned something uh, that I didn't even know, the difference between uh, a county judge and a district judge. And and what the what that looks like and what the barriers are and what constitutes county cases and uh, district cases and federal cases. So before we jump into that, though, um, I want to take it back to a younger Judge Walker and and how how was it you came about wanting to get involved in the military and, and serve? Is that were were you raised with like a servant's mentality or is that something you know giving back? something that you just decided you want to do on your own? Well, my grandfather on my father's side served in the Navy during World um, War II. And um, I think he's the only person in our family who was in the military. Uh, my father was very high on education. And uh, he worked and put himself through uh, college at SMU. Uh, his father only had a third, third grade education. Uh, and worked as a salesman at Pittsburgh Paint. And so uh, he never had the opportunities that he wanted his children to have, including my dad. And so my father graduated high school, uh, graduated college, and then also went back and got his master's of business at SMU. And that was really important to my dad. He used to say only in 
education is is like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Only a moron would stand in line, pay their money, and then put as little on their plate as possible. Uh, but I did not have his appetite for education. I was kind of a goof off. Um, I think I was of average intelligence or so, but I just procrastinated a lot and then uh, would try to hurry at the end of a semester my grade point average up so that uh, he would not, you know, get upset or, and punish me. Uh, and when I finally did graduate high school, I just knew I wasn't mature enough uh, to go in and do well at college. And so I sat down with my dad and I just had an honest conversation with him. I do want to go to college. I know that's important. I just don't think I will do as well right now. Um, I know I need more structure. And I had spoken with an Air Force recruiter, and I thought, you know, this is something I would like to do. And unbeknownst to me, um, that was something that my father had felt at one point, that maybe he would do better if he had a chance to go out and get some real-world experience, some real-world life, uh, and then settle down into a scholastic um, endeavor. Uh -huh. and so he supported it, and I, I joined the Air Force just before my 18th birthday and went in a month after my 18th birthday. Um, ironically, I'm just born on the 4th of July, you know. And oh, so, that's, I didn't even know that. That's awesome. Yeah, and so uh, people always say, does that have something to do with it? And I'm like, you know, I don't know, but I've had so many friends and people I've met that are in the military that happen to have the 4th of July. So there's some kind of connection there or not. Uh, I originally actually went in, and at that particular time, the military was struggling to get people to join. And so, had a program where they would give you a guaranteed job if you would enlist. And as my recruiter was listing all the different possible jobs, one popped up that he just didn't know by just looking at the code number. And he said, well, I don't know what this one is. I don't think I've seen it before. So, he pulled it up. And he said, oh, this is Armed Forces Radio Television announcer. And I thought, what could be better than that? I'm 18 years old. I like sports too, you know, being on camera. Hey, how could that be a bad gig? And so I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll, I want to be a, a radio television announcer. And uh, he was not supposed to be able to put someone in that job. That's why he was unfamiliar with the code for it. Uh -huh. but up the contract and I was guaranteed that that's the job the military would give me and I went down to basic training and as I got close to finishing basic training they brought me in and said hey you got a contract for this job and you weren't supposed to be offered that because obviously they want you to meet certain uh, requirements to be on radio or television and they said, so what we're gonna do is we've notified the training school of the error and they want you to come in and do a test reading and then send them the results. So I went in and they had a radio booth and they gave me, a, I guess it was a paragraph or so to read. They, times they shipped it off to the school and the school came back and said, absolutely, there is no way we could take him. His voice is terrible. Uh, <laughs> he has the worst Texas draw we've ever heard. It's real gravelly. It doesn't come across well. There's absolutely no way. I don't care what his contract said. We don't want him. 
And so I was really disappointed. And I said, well, then I guess I'm going to get out of the military. And uh, that's when uh, they looked at my background. I had a clean background, but I had a strict father. Uh, um, they looked at my shooting scores on the range, and I qualified as an expert marksman. And they came back and they said, hey, we think you could pass an above top secret clearance and that you could go into a specialized rear field. Um, and what do you think? You want to get out or you want to go this route? I'm 18 years old. I'm pumped full of testosterone. You're talking about giving me a secret, a top secret clearance and above. I'm thinking I'm James Bond. I'm going to go. Yeah. <laughs> missions across the world, you know, assassinate, you know, leaders of other countries, you know, these silly thoughts are running through my head. <laughs> of course, you know, I'll do that. Um, and it turned out to be, of course, a lot different than that. Um, yeah. And I went to Omaha, Nebraska at first and then to Korea. Uh, and then during my career, uh, I happened to get stationed at a what's called a joint command. It's where the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines are all part of that command structure. And uh, I really liked what I was doing, and I started becoming more involved in different aspects. A lot of it was highly classified. Uh, went on several missions that uh, were classified as hazardous fire zone. Um, was stationed at Central Command in Florida during the when the Gulf War came about, uh, and I served under General Norman Schwarzkopf, and we went over there uh, to Saudi Arabia, and then I ventured to Kuwait and to Zaku, Iraq, and other places, wow. uh, and served in the Gulf War. And once you kind of get into that joint um, command structure and certain things, I actually wanted to transfer into a different career field. Uh, but once they've spent all that time training you, uh, it's difficult. And so I ended up spending the rest of my time, you know, working at various different joint commands. So define special ops. What is, I'm sure there's lots of different types of special ops and there's probably administrative special ops and there's, you know, let's hang Osama bin Laden special ops, and there's all kinds of different special ops. What was your field? Um, I'm not really at liberty to discuss certain things, but I can just. Oh, cool. That's, that's cool. Okay. Uh, yeah, you certainly have, you know, what you see on the movies, you have um, special ops teams and Navy SEALs and Green Berets. Uh, and these are small individualized groups uh, that go in in the, the dark of night and do rescue ops. And in the Air Force, you know, we have what we call PJs. Uh -huh. rescue. They, they go in and try to rescue down pilots. And you're right. Every command has administrative specialists. They have people that do, you know, accounting and finance, everything else. Um, and so... Just because you work in special ops doesn't mean that you're one of the, you know, Navy SEAL commando types. Right. Uh, it does mean, though, that you are very likely to go and serve in hazardous fire zones and, and in war situations uh, because we're all trained. We're all 
first military members uh, and called upon you to do what you got to do. Um, I was a communications and intel specialist. I was also a marksman, so I and I did a lot of um, intel work, we'll say. Uh -huh. And so uh, I was one of those who was always really wanting to to go and uh, be on the front lines a lot. And so I would always volunteer. And when uh, when you volunteer, you get back. Wow, so interesting. 22 years in, in the armed forces. That's kind of why I, how I got into to the law, because I realized as I got close to retiring that I'm not really trained to do a whole lot of things uh, that has a civilian counterpart. Oh. There's not going to be a lot of jobs for me uh, waiting for me. All right, that makes sense. So I went ahead and got my degree just before I retired. And uh, then I've always been interested in the law. My mother had a haircutting salon in downtown Dallas, and it was across the street from uh, the courthouse. And she would cut hairs for judges and lawyers all the times. And they had a one hour dry cleaners nearby. And so they'd bring their suits in, get their shoes polished, get a haircut, you know, off, go off to court. And I was considered too young. I was, I think, like 13 at the time and uh, 14 and uh, to be left at home by myself. And so I had to go in the summers and be at her hair salon. And there's nothing more painful for a 13 or 14 year old boy than watching people cut hair. And I grew up in a hair salon. Both my parents are hair hairstylists. Yeah. And I, I get it. Yep. And so it finally, one of the, I, don't, I think it was a judge. Uh, might have been an attorney and said, why don't you let him come across the street and watch a trial or something? And I was hooked. Oh, I bet. I never, I, I, I kind of put that aside because I'm in the military now and I'm just progressing through the ranks uh -huh. and, um, and I'm not working in any legal career field. So when I got ready to retire, I thought, why not go to law school? So at age 40, I enrolled in, uh, at SMU Law School and graduated. And while I was there, I did an internship at the Collin County District Attorney's Office as a prosecutor. Hmm. When I graduated, I got hired there and worked there for a while. So you've been a Collin County judge, you said for eight years, right? And that what yes. you- Eight you years this September. Eight years this September. And um, I think you said, Several of those years were drug court related, operating the drug courts. And it's been three years, I think, since you said you worked in the drug court. But you have a very interesting relationship um, with, with the drug court and the disease of addiction and how it can overtake, you know, adolescents and, and young adults and, and what it can do to their lives and what the disease actually does. You have a, a firsthand experience with a story you shared with me about uh, your daughter falling into a, a, a trap that led to a conviction. And you said something about when we were talking that really struck me was because of the people she was involved with, it ended up being federal charges, which is different than local drug charges. And I didn't know the difference between the two. So, Tell me a little bit more about that 
that story and how that happened and, and what's the, what the differences are there. Sure. Um, after I left the DA's office, I prosecuted during that three years, sexual assault of children cases, murder cases. And um, I left and opened up my own law firm with another attorney that worked there. He was my supervisor, the, the gentleman that hired me, David Waddell, who by the way is also now a judge and is actually running the drug court that I was running. Uh -huh. I left and we opened our own law firm um, and I was practicing as a defense attorney for about four years or so um, before I ran for judge. While I was a defense attorney, I got a call one night and I'll never forget it. it was my daughter and she was, she was crying on the phone and she was saying that she had been arrested. Um, and I said, I'll, I'll be right there. And I'd handled enough cases as a prosecutor and a defense attorney to know that um, what's going to happen is she's going to postpone. There's going to be discovery. There's going to be police reports. The prosecutor's going to make her an offer. Uh, probably it's going to be what's called deferred adjudication, which means if she pleads guilty, she would be on probation for a year or so. And then uh, after she successfully completes probation, the judge actually finds you not guilty. So you do the punishment, but you don't have that stigma attached to being. Yeah, hanging over your head. Yeah. Sure. And I got a rude awakening because as soon as I got down there, I found out that she had been arrested uh, for selling drugs with her boyfriend to some of their friends. Um, and that the people that had caught them were not, you know, uh, local police department. They were federal agents. And the federal system is completely different than the local system. If she had been arrested by Dallas police, Plano police, McKinney police, Texas Rangers, any of those organizations, she would have guaranteed been given probation. And she would have only been charged for what she did, which was her and her boyfriend bought some pills, uh, Xanax, and they bought extra pills to sell to their friends in the hopes of uh, not making enough money to pay for their own pills. Uh -huh. <clears throat> and under Texas law, you're only responsible for what you bought or what you sold. And unfortunately, under the federal sentencing guidelines, you're responsible for what you bought and what that person bought and that person bought and that person bought and that person bought. And, person bought. and she had gotten caught in a federal undercover investigation that traced its way all the way from Texas up to Colorado, out to California, up to Washington, and down to Columbia. So now instead of being charged with the 100 pills that she bought and sold, she's charged with over 7 million worth of narcotics. Uh, and she is looking at about 25 years in the penitentiary instead of deferred adjudication. And it always struck me that I, I believe that people should be accountable for what they do and they should be punished for what they do. They should not be punished based on who caught them, but that's the system. Now, 
his boyfriend that she went wayward with, uh, they broke up and she had actually moved back home. Um, she was doing great, had a job at CVS pharmacy, a good set of friends. And in fact, when she got arrested, the attorney that I hired to uh, handle her case, he had the foresight to ask her, have you been using drugs? And she said, no, I haven't used drugs in a year and a half or more. And so he had a hundred hair follicle test done where they pluck out a hundred hairs from different parts of your head. And it turned out she had not used any drugs in over a year. That's as far back as it can go. Uh -huh. She had never had anything except traffic ticket, a speeding ticket or a parking ticket. And, but she was, they start off, let's say you're, you're because of the level of drugs she's being charged with, um, it would start off at like say 25 years. And then the judge can reduce that if you didn't use a weapon. Well, obviously she didn't use a weapon so that she gets a couple of years off of that. And then have you ever had any other criminal behavior? Never. So she gets a couple of years off of that. Uh, are you admitting guilt and taking responsibility? Yes, a couple of years off of that. But she was still looking at 12 to 15 years in prison. And the judge uh, in Fort Worth, He's, I remember when we went there for her sentencing, he said, you know, everybody stops using drugs. Everybody moves home with mommy and daddy. Everybody starts going to church again after they get caught because they want to impress upon me that they're, they've changed. Uh -huh. Here, you were doing all of those things, going to church, moved back home with your parents, got a new set of friends, working stopped using drugs before you ever knew you were even being investigated. So I'm going to take mercy. And he ended up giving her, which I believe was five years. Uh, and she did two and a half or so of that. And it was going to the federal penitentiary, uh, hearing that she had to strip naked. They would have to do cavity searches of her before her mother and I could visit. Um, she could, there were vending machines around the visitation room, um, but the inmates aren't allowed to go up to them. They're not allowed to handle money. So if she wanted something like a drink or potato chips, you know, we'd have to go get it for her. And she, of course she can't have those things, um, during the week because she can't use the vending machines. They have a commissary and I'm, I'm not sure what they do there, but I saw the light go out in her eyes. Oh. Being incarcerated, um, it can do that to people. And it broke my heart as her father to see her there and to know that it was especially hard, I think, for me because I knew that um, I had had clients that had done committed drug offenses far worse and I was able to negotiate on their behalf and get them deferred adjudication, you know, get them, uh, you know, a couple of weeks in jail and it's behind them kind of thing. And I was hopeless to help her because she uh -huh. was in the federal system. And I really, to this day, you know, I, before I got elected in 2012, I had ran a race for judge in 2010. And it was a three person race. 
there were six groups that were endorsing judicial candidates, or excuse me, seven groups. Uh, one of the people in the race didn't get any endorsements, uh, but the person who actually won the race, Judge Lance Baxter, Baxter, received one, and I had six endorsements of the seven. I really thought I was going to win this race. As it turned out, it was a very tight race. Um, Three-way race, and I missed getting into the runoff because uh, you need over 50% or else the top two candidates are in a runoff. I missed getting into the runoff by 52 votes out of like 33,000. And I was devastated uh, by that, to be honest. And I, I now believe that God needed me to have an experience um, that my daughter went through to round me out to be a better judge, to understand. I had come from a father who was strict. I had been in military and not just the military, but in special units where everybody is very rigorous and it's very structured. Um, you're almost potty trained at gunpoint kind of thing. Uh -huh. I had been a defense attorney, but I really hadn't had any personal experience of what it's like when someone gets a long sentence. And I'll just say that um, because of the work I did in the DA's office, uh, prosecuting sexual assault cases of children and defending some of those cases when I believe the person was not guilty, um, I am actually a county judge here, um, sexual assault of children cases where people can go to prison for life. And so now I know that when you are sentencing someone to jail or to prison, they may need to be punished, but I can see both sides now and I can better assess what I think is fair and just. I would have never had that, that, um, that background had it's not happened to my daughter. Yeah, so the, uh, the time frame that that happened to your daughter, was that just before you decided you wanted to, to run? For, for judge, is that what you're saying? The 2010 to 2012 gave you that time frame? No, um, she, she was arrested and this took place prior, just prior to my 2010 race. Huh. And, but it was that experience of visiting her and changing her, you know, she still owes $7 million, you know, so she- Seven? seven? million seven million yeah she's responsible we're all responsible so the drug kingpin sold seven million and even if you only bought a hundred dollars worth you're responsible for the whole seven million just like the drug king kingpin in Colombia. everybody is what's called jointly and severably liable for all the drugs that were sold and so if she gets a job and she makes a decent living, they can just come in and take it away. If I die and I leave her any inheritance, they can come and take it away. It's changed her life forever. I mean, she'll, she'll never be able to have anything. And I, I want to make it clear. She, she committed a crime. She has to be accountable and held accountable for that. But I think the punishment needs to be one that's, you know, 
appropriate for her level of culpability in this. She's yeah. not a Colombian drug lord. She didn't get the, the money, the $7 million, you know. She's just yeah. a kid who bought some Xanax. That is just unbelievable. I, I had no idea that that was even the thing. I, I, I thought that you were, you know, like you mentioned before, only accountable for your actions. You know, this is what I did. This is the offense that I made. Let's talk about my sentencing based on my own actions. Like, why am I guilty of Pablo Escobar? You know what I mean? Like, exactly. it's yeah, just exactly. insane. And and I will tell you that when your child goes through something, there is not a bigger catalyst to get you up off your behind and to learn about things. Um, we didn't have anybody in our family who had a drug problem or alcohol problem. So I, I really did not have that catalyst to get me to want to learn more about it, but that did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then and when I've, I've, go ahead. When I got elected in 2012, I wanted and I heard about the drug program that um, Judge Mason and Judge Wilson were running. I was intrigued. Um, now, understand that the, all of the judges run their court. They have the, you had asked me earlier about the difference between county court and district court. Is this a good time to explain that? Sure, yeah, absolutely. And then you touched on what I was just about to say, something about the, the drug court and, and, you know, how that opportunity was presented to you. Was there an opening? I mean, it was perfect timing, you know, for you to get involved in that with your, your heart in that place. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Judge Mason, and, and that was my judge whenever I did the, the drug and DWI court program that Collin County offers. And it was, it was uh, a very hard and very trying experience, but it helped me so much. And to see the level of care that you judges have when it comes to the disease of addiction and 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 how much research and how much training you guys have to go through to fully understand the disease of addiction so you can deal with people suffering from, from a place of, you know, uh, compassion, but also here's the law as well, you know, and, and figuring out what, what that balance is. I think you and, you and I talked about something that was really interesting, like, you know, if we all know it's a disease, how many people use it as their cop-out? Oh, well, I'm just sick. So I'll, I can just keep screwing up. Oh, I'm just sick. And they can just claim being sick. You know what I mean? Um, so where do you draw that line? So before we kind of talk a little bit about that and where your heart's at with drug court and, and how you've been able to help the community and, and help the kids and help the teens and, and young adults and all that, um, you were about to say something about the, the difference between the district court and the, the county court. Now, I, I think that definitely has merit for sure. Okay, yeah, it's kind of confusing in Texas because um, you cities in Collin County and they each have a, a mayor, right? Um, and then you have one for all of the county, okay? But we don't call him the county mayor, we call him the county judge, and that's Chris Hill. That person is not an attorney. They're not a judge. They're not in a courtroom. Uh, it's a um, administrative position, like mayor. You're the mayor for the whole county, kind of thing. So it can confuse people when they hear 
county judge, they think you're the, a judge in the county or for the county. But so we have the county judge administrative role, mayor, mayoral like for the whole county. Then we have district courts and county level courts. They're called county courts at law. Now, district courts handle family law matters like divorces, adoptions, termination of parental rights. They also, if they're a general jurisdiction courts, because we have some specialty courts where that's all they're handling is family law or all they're handling is civil law. And we have some district judges who are general jurisdiction. If you are a general jurisdiction judge in Collin County, then you handle felony criminal cases, civil cases where the amount in controversy is unlimited. It could be $200 trillion. Um, and then you handle family law cases, okay? So district judges are, and courts are real easy to identify because they all have a three, num uh, three numbers in their name. The 199th, Judge Angela Tucker, the 219th, the 367th, and so on. So if you hear a, about a court and it has three numbers, you know you're talking about a court that is a district judge. County courts have single numbers, one through seven. I'm the judge of court two, for instance. We do not deal with family law. We don't do divorces. We don't do adoptions or termination of parental rights. We do cases that involve criminal cases where the punishment range can be up to one year in county jail, not prison, and where civil cases where the amount that's being argued about is 200 thousand dollars or less and we do um, certain other we have certain other uh, jurisdiction when it comes to if the state wants to take over a piece of your property for the public good then we handle those as well we handle appeals from the justice of the peace courts um, and we don't deal with the, the, the prison system unless, like I said earlier, in my case, I handle sexual assault of children cases. So I do hear those cases from time to time. Now, Judge Mason was a DWI drug court judge and so was Judge Dan Wilson. Now, they're handling the regular courts and they're doing this as an extra project, an extra program that benefits all of the citizens because fewer drug addicted people in the community, the better, fewer alcoholics driving down the road intoxicated. But this is something they do on top of the regular court. And it's very taxing for the judge, but even more so for their staff. So after a few years, it's a good idea if you want to pass that on to another judge. And Judge Wilson um, who had a lot of other extracurricular activities as well as a judge, uh, I approached him and he said, sure, if you want to take over the program, you can. Um, now, you remember earlier I mentioned I went left the DA's office with the guy that hired me, David, uh, and we opened a practice together. He's also a judge now. He's the judge of court seven. Um, he uh, would handle the defense side representing someone in drug court in my drug court program before he became a judge. And so he got a feel for that, plus his wife was involved in drug court. So 
when he became a judge, he was anxious to also be a drug court judge. And I turned the program over to him about three years ago. So uh, very familiar with Judge Mason and very familiar with Judge Waddell, obviously, and phenomenal judges, both of them great drug court judges. But that's how I became a drug court judge. And that's why I'm not doing it now because I think it benefits for as many judges as possible to have a turn at this because it's such a great experience and an eye-opening experience. Yeah, and keep keep spreading the education about, you know, the, the disease and, and not, not just addiction, but mental health issues, you know, because uh, addiction is a it's a mental disease. It's a it's a mental health issue. Um I also want to give a plug for Judge Andrea Stroh Thompson. We didn't have, as you know, we didn't have anyone doing uh, drug court at the felony level after Judge Ray Wheelis. Um, right. And Judge Andrea Stroh Thompson picked up that mantle and she's been doing it at the felony level, which really helps. Because for a while there, uh, the judges in, at the county court level that were doing drug court, we were doing it for all of the misdemeanors and the felonies, and that, that really yeah. was a lot. Yeah, I was very fortunate to be one of those people that that got to, uh, you know, be a part of the, the misdemeanor DWI court, even though my DWI was a felony charge, that there was nobody specifically designed to that, and I just... By the by, the grace of God, ended up in Judge Mason's drug court, and and uh, it was one heck of an experience, man. And so, for for those of you guys that are listening, we keep saying drug court, we keep saying drug court, we keep saying drug court. Could you give a brief definition of exactly what drug court is, and and what role you guys specifically play, and how it works? Sure. If you take a, a normal drug or alcohol offense, the defendant would come in and let's say they would go to trial. If they were found guilty, then either the judge or the jury would pronounce sentence what the punishment would be. It could be probation, it could be jail. Um, a lot of people don't who get arrested don't necessarily have an addiction. They had one too many drinks at an event. Um, they didn't realize that they were intoxicated and they drove and got stopped by police, arrested and, and found themselves into the criminal court. Other people have an addiction, an alcohol addiction or drug addiction, and this isn't a one-off situation. So they need to get help. Um, putting them in jail, get some sober for that period that they're in jail, but they get out and have the same problem. And so a DWI drug court program was uh, invented, for lack of a better word. And what it does is the defendant comes in and they agree to go under a very special court monitored program. And it is arduous. It is time consuming. It is expensive in some aspects. It can be. Um, and Instead of being on probation where you meet with a probation officer once a month and maybe you're drinking and you don't get caught because, you know, when you get called in for a urinalysis, you're clean, you haven't drank in a couple of Defendants who sign up for drug court, it's completely voluntary. These people have decided that they want to get help and they, they need the help and they know that this is far from taking the easy way out. They start and they meet with the judge every week. 
uh, instead of a probation officer every once a month. Um, they go through IOP, intensive outpatient, you know, through substance abuse evaluation. They're given urine tests probably five, ten times more often than anybody on regular probation, and they're paying for those urine tests. They go through a DWI education class. Uh, they go to a victim impact panel class where they learn from people and hear from families that have lost a loved one. Uh, due to some intoxicated, either under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Uh, they do community service. Um, they have a random call-in system. They call in every day to see if they've been randomly selected to come in. And they keep that up. Um, and then they eventually will graduate from that phase one to phase two. They're still doing all of those things, but they're meeting with the judge every two weeks instead of every week. And then into phase three, and they meet with the judge once a month. Uh, and then after that's up, which is a two-year-long program, and remember, most people's probation, if it's a first offense or a second offense, they're, they're done in a year, 15 months. After 18 months, then they go into the aftercare program. And they're, again, they're, they're monitored. And if they have a, a setback, if they... Um, drink or get caught using drugs or not following the program, the judge can step in and sentence them to jail time and then the program or restart the program, take them from one level, like level three, put them back in level two, add community service. The judge, though, in drug court is still the judge and eventually may have to punish the person uh, if they were to follow the program guidelines and, and, and really absorb the help we're offering. But we're also cheerleader for these people. And we're in it with them, want to see them succeed. And we're a counselor. We wear different hats. And so when we know somebody has an addiction and they are willing to put themselves in drug court to get the help they need, we have the ability to be much more lenient. And so we look for triggers and try to identify what's causing the person to relapse. What can we do? What Every person's different. What can we offer this person that might help them be strong the next time they have that feeling that they want to have a drink or they want to use a drug? So we're the judge and we're the cheerleader and we're a counselor. Yeah, and Judge Mason was definitely all of those things. She was she was so good. And you know, I even went back a couple times after I graduated just to just to say hi, you know. Like she I was impacted. I was very impacted. So really thank you guys for what you do. And a lot of people, like even you know, the times that I would end up having to go to, to jail, it blows my mind how many people in the system did not even know what drug court meant whenever I said it. You got people sit, sitting in jail that never even heard of it before. Yeah, and a lot of that is kind of because of the adversarial role and the defense attorney role. You know, when you hire a defense attorney, a criminal defense attorney, their goal and their job is to protect you and to get you the best possible outcome for you. Uh -huh. Not a parent, 
they're your legal representative. Now, I do have some defense attorneys who um, they'll have very candid conversations with their client and they'll say, look, I'm, you know, I'm worried about you. I'm worried you may kill yourself or that you may uh, overdose or that you may get arrested again and you go off to the federal penitentiary. And so they'll say, you know, there's a drug court that could get you the help you need. And they'll have that conversation. But people need to understand that it's a difficult and tricky situation and conversation to have with your client when you're a defense attorney because they've hired you to get a, the best possible outcome to this for them. And you're telling them the prosecutor's willing to let you be on probation, do 40 hours of community service, pay a $200 fine, and you'll be off probation in a year. You can even get off early if the judge will let you. Or you can sign up for drug court and you have to go through all of this and you're going to end up having to pay for counseling, individual and group counseling and have to go stop your, your work week and come in every Thursday and you're gonna get urine tested and have to urinate in front of a total stranger. They actually watch the urine come out so that you're not sneaking in a bag of clean urine you are going to subject yourself to this for two years. Hey, how about it? You want to sign up for that? <laughs> really wanting help, they're going to look at their attorney and go, what in the world would I want to do that for? Right. A lot of defense attorneys may feel somewhat reluctant to uh, suggest to their client, why don't you get yourself involved in this? Also, a lot of people who are addicted don't want to admit it. So right. if you're an attorney and you feel like your client is, is an addict and is headed down a dangerous path, uh, if they tell you, look, I don't want to do it. I don't want, I'm not an addict. I can quit any time. Uh, it's the, the attorney's job is to, to look after their legal interests, not necessarily be their friend or their parent, you know, and tell them, no, no, you are an addict and you do need this. They can't make the client take drug right so there's you know that addresses your uh, point about a lot of people never even hear about it yeah and you know my situation was you do this or you go to prison for a long time what, what do you choose <laughs> that's that's a no-brainer <laughs> yeah and we you know we've had people i've had a just turned 16 year old girl who was a meth addict and was pregnant in drug court. Um, tenth grader about to drop out. She might have even been in the ninth. And uh, she came into drug court, and it is strict, but it rewards good progress. And they, uh -huh. you know, I truly believe this. I believe when you set the bar for someone, especially young people, they will meet that level. So set it as high as you can. Okay. And I told her, you're going to never use meth because if you use meth, I'm going to put you in jail until this child is born. They don't have CPS get involved and they're going to probably take your child away. And, and you're going to be in this drug court program and part of your drug court is going to be that you're going to get your GED or your diploma. I ran into her several months ago at a gas station. Her child was beautiful. I attended her graduation. Uh, held her baby at her graduation. I mean, she 
has changed her life so much. Uh, she is a proud, responsible mother working in a doctor's office. She did get her degree while she was in drug court. Um, another lady came to court. I was about to put her in jail because she had missed uh, her court appearances and now she was several hours late. Um, and I don't, I don't get to talk to people as the judge, you know, the, the attorneys, um, I talk more to the attorneys, they're represented counsel. They have the right not to talk to me, you know, not to say anything, amendment right when they have uh, criminal cases. And I just like, ma'am, you're late, late again, you no show before, you know, uh, I'm about to just to uh, put you in jail and revoke your bond. And she I said, why were you late? And she said, Judge, I couldn't get a ride here. I've alienated all of my family and friends uh, because of my drug use. And uh, I actually had to uh, prostitute myself to get this guy to bring me here today. And tears oh. face. And I looked oh. at the emaciated, um, her, her skin was sunken in, her her teeth were starting to show early onset, you know, meth and decay. I could just, I saw that same light going out in her eyes that I saw in my daughter's when she went to the penitentiary. And I just asked her, I said, you know, when was the last time you ate? And she said, today was the fourth day. And I said, okay. Uh, her attorney was there, her attorney, wonderful attorney. Um, trusted me. Um, I said, look, let's, first of all, let's get you something to eat. You're going to be sick. So we took her down to the cafeteria. I bought her lunch. Um, I talked to her attorney. I said, see if she's, if she's willing to go into drug court and treatment. Um, he talked to her, uh, had that heart to heart talk with her. Um, said, yeah, judge, she wants to, uh, worked with the probation officer. Uh, Myra Panetto, she was able to get her a scholarship. We got her on the road that same day down to a treatment facility, I believe it was Houston. And, um, you know, it, at Halloween time, uh, kids come trick or treat at the courthouse. And parents bring them because it's a lit and safe environment for kids to trick or treat, air conditioned, you know, go from one courthouse or one office to another. And, um, she comes running up. Oh, I'm so glad Judge Walker, you were here. I was hoping you would be here. She had brought her kids trick-or-treating. She said, my husband wants to thank you and I want you to meet my husband and my kids. He's got tears coming down his eyes. Thank you for what you did for my wife. You saved her life. He had her two children from previous relationships. The kids were all happy, dressed up in their costumes. She's clean and sober now for two years as a, a good job, was thanking me for what, you know, I had done. And I said, you know, I didn't do anything. You did it. I just pointed the direction for you. Um, and you did all the hard work. Those are the moments when you look and you say, what was her survivor, survivability rate going to be? If she's prostituting herself for drugs before she catches AIDS, you know, or, or some other disease or overdoses or 
it's raped or murdered or killed. Um, and what is after now she is a mother for two kids that were there already. She's responsible. She's a she's on a career path, you know, all because she was willing to put in the work and a program in place for her to do. Yeah, and you know what's really cool about that too is she was willing to be vulnerable with you, you know, and tell you exactly the for real reason she was late. Had she not had the courage to be vulnerable, no telling what would have happened. Yeah, I would have just had to assume that, you know, uh, she doesn't care about showing up on time and she's, you know, going to always be late and, or not show up at all. And mm -hmm. I had to revoke her bond to get her attention. I, she would have gotten another bond probably a few days later. I'd probably kept her in jail for like two days to get her attention. But you're 100% right. It's her willingness to be open and vulnerable about it and to trust that, you know, someone, you know, just because we are the judge and we wear a robe doesn't mean we're not compassionate and that we don't care. You know, all of the judges that I've met in Collin County are remarkable people. All of them are capable of earning twice as much money at law firms than they make as a judge, but they have this servant's heart and they want to do things like drugs, you know, and Judge Roach doing veterans court, you know, all of them do extracurricular things that take up their time and time away from them uh, that, that they could spend with their family, all because they really love this community, they love what they do, and they're passionate about it. Yeah, you saying community um, kind of leads me to the next thing that I wanted to ask you about everything that's going on in our communities around us. Um, the, the havoc, the, the chaos, the rage, the violence, you know, outside of this whole issue that just happened, which I don't know if you saw the video, but frankly, I, I, I don't find myself getting mad very often um, or getting like emotionally attached to something I can't control because if, if I let myself get all emotional, then I can't perform well and I can't be the best father or, you know, and I'm still trying to learn how to do that. <laughs> I think we all are trying to always learn how to be better at that. But I, I, I don't, so I don't really throw my emotions around a lot when it's stuff that I can't control. But when I saw that video of what happened, I, my, my heart sank. And I was absolutely livid. Um, as to not just because of the act, the act itself was heinous, but how a person could have such disregard, you know, knowing that they're being videoed, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't like someone down the block with a giant zoom lens, you know, it wasn't like candid, you know, it was plain, like, just to me, there's, there's a lot of sickness and a lot of hurt involved with someone that would be able to do that to, to somebody um but uh there's a lot of different opinions there's a lot of different uh there's a you know huge amounts of pain around this and now that there's charges coming down the pipeline um what if anything would you like to to share about what we're 
going through right now as a, as a community and as a society and, and frankly, as, as a whole entire species. Yeah, it, um, you're obviously referring to uh, the George Floyd video, correct? Yeah. It's, I'm not a police officer. I've never been in law enforcement. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the men and women who would risk their lives for a low paying job like that. Um, they, they, I believe the overwhelming majority of them do it because they're passionate about their community. They're passionate about helping other people. They have a servant's heart. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, just like in certain military units, um, I think certain career fields like law enforcement can attract uh, people uh, who like the idea of being able to impose their will on other people. You have a lot of power uh, when you're behind an M16 rifle. You have a lot of power when you pin on that badge and you carry a gun. Um, and it takes the right type of person to be able to handle that power and not abuse it. Uh -huh. And um, obviously, I've only seen this field that everybody else has seen, but it's difficult for me to understand why it would ever be necessary when you have someone handcuffed and on their stomach laying on the ground. Now, imagine for a moment with your hands behind your back, handcuffed, how difficult it would be to even rise to a kneeling or standing position. Oh, uh, I've been in that position. It's next to impossible. <laughs> You're not going to yeah. just no. pop up and all of a sudden be on your feet. Okay. No so while you've got a suspect handcuffed and on their stomach or side, or even sitting down and, you know, against the wall or a vehicle or in the back seat, and you, and on top of that, you have the support of not one, not two, but three other officers there to assist you, why in the world would it ever be necessary for you to put your hands on them, much less your knee and their neck, and ignore their cries that they can't breathe? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, I think anybody who is being intellectually honest has to acknowledge that we still have racism in this country and has to acknowledge that um, there, uh, there needs to be critical reform. Um, we're lucky we have a lot of really fantastic law enforcement agencies in Collin County, which is why you don't see a lot of the complaints. I don't think the Collin County Jail has ever been successfully sued in 30, 40 years. I remember the, the former sheriff, Terry Box, I asked him that question and never happened. That yeah. means he's hiring the best, training the best, and supervising the best people and holding them accountable. It's never happened under Sheriff Skinner that I'm aware of. Um, I'm good friends with Plano's uh, Chief of Police, uh, Ed Drain, who just came back and took over the position of um, 
chief of police for Plano, a better man you could never find to run that department. African-American, SWAT team trained, servant leader. I saw him on TV marching with the peaceful protesters and supporting that. And what a powerful message that sends to people who have been on the wrong end of this argument, who have not been treated fairly, who have been discriminated against, who have been racially profiled, that, hey, here's your chief of police if you live in Plano, and he's marching with you. That, you know, when you march with the peaceful protesters, you're not saying, I'm not supportive of law enforcement, in my mind. In my mind, you're saying, I do support law enforcement and the people who wear that badge proudly and who uh, do not abuse the trust that we place in them. And, the, and I don't want one bad police officer to tarnish the image of that badge and the respect that we owe all of the officers who put it on. So I encourage the police, when you see this, you need to report it. When you see it, you're watching a crime take place. Make an arrest. Is it hard? Absolutely. You may be arresting your supervisor. I understand, just like in the military, you know, you get in, involved with a special unit, you know, you want to back your brothers and your sisters. But there's a time when you have to draw that line. And there can uh -huh. be no clearer a line than when you are watching one of your brothers or sisters commit an abuse, uh, commit a crime. I don't care if they are your supervisor. That's when you have to take the moral high ground and say, I'm going to be on the right side of this and I'm going to stop it from happening. I may have to arrest my supervisor. I may have to report them and testify against them. I may have to pull them off of that person, but I'm not going to be just culpable by standing by. And that's why the other three are now being charged for aiding and abetting because uh -huh. You had a duty to not let that happen. If they had walked up upon two people fighting and one person had the other person subdued, tie strapped, hands behind his back, and was pressing down on his neck with his knee, do you think those police officers would have walked by and said, oh, well, you know, I don't see anything wrong here? Not a chance. No, they would have immediately injected themselves into the situation to find out what's going on here. That's not allowed. That's problematic. Did this man yeah. try to rob you? Are you holding him down, waiting for us to come? Are you the aggressor? We need to find out. Okay, so if it's not right for the to walk by, then it's not certainly not right for the police to be a part of that action. Yeah. yeah. And And again, It is the new, the number of people that I think that abuse that badge are so, so small. And unfortunately, the rest of the people who are putting their life on the line, they get thrown in the mix. Like yep. all cops are bad, all cops are racist, and it's just not the case. Oh, not even close, man. But we need to, we need to develop a culture of not policing the community, policing with the community. Uh -huh. and 
calling out um, officers who don't need to be officers and getting them out of that profession. You know, there's a prayer that's taking place tomorrow night on the Collin County Courthouse uh, in support of the, the peaceful protesters. And I want to keep saying that because these people that are using the tragedy of George Floyd's death as some excuse to riot, loot, burn, commit arson, um, break into stores and steal things. That's shameful behavior and it's criminal behavior. And I believe it shouldn't be tolerated. And um, don't even invoke George Floyd's name if all you're doing it is for an opportunity for you to steal something, uh -huh. to burn something, because that's not fair to him or his family, you know. Um, but there's going to be uh, elected officials. Um, I plan to be there tomorrow night at the courthouse praying in solidarity with the, um, the people that are peacefully protesting. And uh, I think it's important that I be there as a judge because our Pledge of Allegiance ends with the three words, justice for all. And that's what has to be not our goal. That has to be what we do from this day going forward. Change has been too long coming for people that are oppressed. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a, fr a friend of mine the other day and I, I, I kind of, I, I view it more of, we, we have a severe character, uh, character issue in, in, in amongst a lot of the citizens, right? It really just boils down to character, morals, and values. That's it. You know, gone are the days or, you know, were there ever even there that, you know, everyone kind of operated from a standard set of good morals, you know, the golden rule, um, help your neighbor, <laughs> you know, give your neighbor a cup of sugar when he needs it, you know, um, don't kick a man while he's down, you know, stuff like that. Just basic morals, just human decency, you know, and I firmly believe like I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for personal development and personal growth and personal change is if, yes, you, if we, you know, if we don't, if, if everyone just wants to play the blame game and just point the finger the other direction, you're going to constantly have a finger pointed out. Nobody's going to want to take personal responsibility, you know, and I honestly don't know how things are truly going to change until we hopefully get to a place of everybody taking personal responsibility, looking in the mirror, taking, you know, working on their character, working on their values, trying to figure out how to become a more productive member of society, trying to be more effective and, uh, you know, for their, for their families and, and give back to the community. I, I think if, if somehow we could make that cool, if somehow we could make like personal development, personal change, a cool, hip, trendy thing. And, I, and there's a lot of it that is trending all over the internet. There's so many, you know, with Instagram and all these life coaches and all these, you know, motivational and inspirational speakers. It's becoming like a cool thing, you know, like it's, it's cool to work on yourself. It's getting there. I see it kind of becoming more of a common thread. Um, I just really, really hope that something happens soon that will awaken our citizens to the point of 
quit blaming the president. I saw someone post something the other day, oh, this is Trump's fault. And I'm like, what? It's, it's no one person's fault. You, you stop blaming. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It's it's a very uh, victim-y way to live, and it, and it sucks. Um, so I think it just boils down to character and morals and values. That's that's it. Well, you know, that look yourself in the mirror. That's the accountability that is the foundation of drug court. Yeah. Uh, while people have a disease. They say, well, well, if they, if you really believe, Judge Walker, that these people have a disease, then why are you punishing them? Why are you sending them to jail whenever they relapse? Because there's still an accountability issue. And you have the disease, and that means we need to work with you and provide you the tools. But you have the responsibility of uh, obtaining those sobriety, okay? Now, you don't have to be sober. It's not illegal to drink as long as you don't drink and drive or you know, cause somebody else harm. Uh, but when you drink and you do drive, you're putting other people at risk. Oh. And, you know, and so we're not going to allow that to happen. You need to stop that. Um, and while you're on probation for DWI, you're not allowed to drink, period, even in the privacy of your own home. That's part of probation. You gave up that right because you committed a crime against society and you put other people at risk. And so, you know, you're, you're 100% right. And it's one of the reasons I love your program. You know, it is about looking yourself in the mirror and just being honest. You know, you know there but by the grace of God go I. You know, I'm not going to sit and pretend like, you know, when I was younger, I didn't go out to a bar and have too much to drink and get behind the wheel. Okay. I was lucky I never hurt anybody. I never, you know, and I'm not talking about being drunk. I'm, but I mean, I don't, I don't believe that I should have had three beers and then got behind the wheel of the car. Uh -huh. um, but uh, yeah, it's about accountability. It's about saying, look, I messed up. I don't, that doesn't mean I have to be labeled, you know, as uh, someone not worthy of, of love or help or anything else, but just be accountable. I remember you told me one time in an earlier conversation, you own your stuff. Um, look, I, I'm, I'm, I suffer for, with alcoholism, I relapse, I, I'm, I'm flawed. And by you putting it out there, you disarm everyone else from trying to use that against you. Well, I've already said that, yeah. you know? And, and I know uh, from being in drug court, how difficult it is, especially for alcoholics. You know, we think of heroin and meth as those drugs that are really hard to kick, and they are. Because you can get sick and you can die, even from the withdrawals. But you can also die from alcohol withdrawal. And with alcohol, it's so difficult because people have an addictive brain. If they, when you take an MRI, you can see that the synapses in the brain where decision-making takes place is not firing. And it takes one full year of not drinking and not putting chemicals into the body for the brain to heal itself. This uh -huh. is excuse. This is visible to the naked eye on an MRI. So when you have people that, you know, maybe a loved one or family member, and then you say, why are you doing this? You know, no, they really don't know. 
they can't answer that question a lot of times because the, that part of their brain isn't functioning. It is grayed out. It is not firing. Um, and, you know, think about it like this. You are an alcoholic and you are in recovery and you are trying not to drink. And so you don't go around your friends that like to party or even those that like to drink and try to take that temptation away. Every gas station you go to has alcohol and beer iced up in the summer months in those gigantic ice cooler cans they put by the register. They have a certain part of the refrigerated section dedicated to nothing but beer and wine. So you can't go inside to a gas station. You can't go to a movie theater because most of them have bars, full-blown bars now. You can't go to a restaurant unless it's, you know, like Chick-fil-A or something, because almost all of them have seat and dining restaurants, have bars and a wine list. Uh, you can't even go shopping for groceries because the supermarket dedicates an entire aisle, if not more than one aisle, packed full of nothing but wine and, and liquor. You know, it is in your face. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and no one, it's not illegal. It's not like you have to look over your shoulder to see if anybody's watching. You can just pick it up put it on the counter and pay for it and go. So it's really hard for someone battling alcoholism to stay sober. And, you know, if you love somebody, like Dr. Phil always says, you never surrender to the disease. If it doesn't mean if you're a parent, a spouse, a child, someone in your family is continuously letting you down that, that you're not entitled to be angry or hurt by that. It doesn't mean that they're, the people shouldn't be accountable. Um, if you know somebody, if you have someone, a loved one that's, that's suffering, it just means that there's a time and a place for everything. And never surrender to the disease. Always keep fighting. I used to tell families uh, who had just about given up on their children or their husband or wife, you're going to have an opportunity. We're going to get them sober. And then you're going to have the opportunity to tell them how they've hurt you and hold them accountable for that. And AA does that. You know, you go through the step programs and you go back and you make amends to those people you've hurt. There's a time and that time will be when we get them sober. But let's not beat them down so much to the point where they give up hope and they don't want to achieve sobriety. You know, it's it's a long road. It's you need a village. I know it's cliche, but you do. You need friends you can call. You need a sponsor you can call. You need somebody who's going to say, "I'm going to stop what I'm doing here two o'clock in the morning. I'm going to come over and I'm going to be with you." And I'm going to talk you down from whatever's going on that's making you want to relapse. And I'm happy to do it, you know, because it's hard. It's hard. It's a constant battle. And, you know, I never knew that. I didn't have the experience. I didn't know how. I still don't have an addiction myself, so I can't speak firsthand, but I can speak from my firsthand experience of trying to help others who do uh -huh. and it is hard and there's no one way that works for everyone it'd be nice if everybody went into a treatment facility and got cured the first time that'd be nice it just doesn't happen that way. no it doesn't at all
and we need to change kind of you know our paradigm on this you know it it used to be uh, lock them up and throw away the key they'll get sober in there you know and that comes at a tremendous cost i don't know if people realize it but there are 1,000 people on average in the collin county jail every night every night being housed there at over 80 dollars per person times 365 days a year it is the criminal justice system is the biggest part of your tax budgets by far. Uh -huh. And the people that the more people that we can convert to being law abiding public citizens, holding down jobs, uh, the better off we are. Because when they're not working, then we pay for them and they get arrested, then we pay for their court appointed attorney. And then they sit in jail and we pay for their housing, their food, their medical care, nothing, it, it, all the money's going out, nothing's coming in. Yep. And so it makes sense to invest our dollars wisely. And I think that uh, to, to help people get cured, those who don't want to be cured, you force our hand. If you're going to put others at risk, then we'll deal with those people uh, the only way that they leave us. But those who want help, let's, let's embrace them and let's help them. And I know that's what you're about. And God bless you, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all of your service and everything that you're doing to, to make a really awesome, positive impact in so many people's lives. It's, it's fantastic to, to watch. And, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, where we can take our, our cool relationship, man, and how many people we can affect and, you know, just educate as many people as possible on, on how this thing works and in hopes of eliminating the stigma behind it, eliminating the shame behind it. There's so much shame that comes along with addiction and alcoholism and, and so many people it seems like they, they they don't they don't end up getting help because they're afraid to admit, you know, because of the stigma. So the more and more and more that we can break down that barrier and break down those walls of, of stigma that you know, uh, alcoholism does not discriminate. Drug addiction does not discriminate. It, it doesn't matter who you are, what your race is, what your, what your, you know, orientation is. It doesn't matter. You know, um, it can get a hold of anyone, anybody, anybody that opens themselves up to, uh, to partying of any type, um, frat houses. Oh man. Brand houses are such a huge cesspool of potential alcoholics, man, you know, because they're partaking. And I, I, it's, it's, that's one thing that I really want to educate, you know, high school kids on and college kids like, Hey dude, you, you can party. It's going to be a thing. All right. You have a choice though. If, if you do, if you do, if you do party, go right ahead. If you do, there's a chance you can develop this allergy, this disease, and become dependent. There is a chance. So you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to that point, if you're choosing to party with drugs um, and you think, well, if I get caught with this 10 Xanax pills or, or one Xanax pill, Am I going to be caught by a local person? I'm going to get probation. It's going to be a slap on the wrist, or is I, or am I going to be like Judge Walker's, and I'm going to find myself at the bottom end of a federal indictment, head into prison? You know, 
And that's what I tell people, you know, you're rolling the dice here. You know, you could buy, you know, an ounce of marijuana. Let's say, and this happens a lot. You want to buy an ounce of marijuana and, oh, but that's a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. So I'm going to buy four ounces and I'm going to sell three of them to a friend of mine to off, to offset the cost of my marijuana. So it's just four ounces of marijuana. Okay. Well, if there happens to be that uh, the federal agents have infiltrated that little ring and they're watching, or they arrest somebody who sold it to you and that person wants to make a bet, you can find yourself serving time in a federal penitentiary and owing $7 million because you decided, I'm just going to buy an ounce of weed and sell three to friends. It's that scary. That's very scary. And, you know, I, 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 like I said, I never knew that. I never knew that. That's completely eye-opening. That's huge. And, you know, like Xanax is such a, a big booming thing in the, in, the, in the community with our kids, you know, middle school kids and high school kids just eating these things like freaking candy. Just one of those is a felony. Just one. Yeah. You know, uh, ecstasy is huge. Heroin's huge. A lot of people like to go to party. They'll drop, you know, they'll take, you know, one ecstasy tab, uh, you know, and just to get lost in the music. And, uh, you know, you, you get caught with that one pill and it's a felony. Is it a state yep. felony and you're going to go get, get probation or is it a federal felony and you're going to owe millions of dollars? And to that point, if you're deciding to party and you're going to use ecstasy, you get caught with that, then you yourself indictment instead of being going into county jail you could be looking at doing real time in prison yeah because you mentioned earlier you're responsible if it's if it's a federal you know if a federal sting is going on around the same group of people that you may have gotten that from and you get caught with it and it's a part of that sting it can travel all the way back through the whole lineage absolutely and, and you're responsible you're responsible all the way from the drug kingpin down to the very person at the very bottom of the chain. And don't think for one second that that you think you have will not wrap you out and testify against you when they're facing looking at 15, 20 years in the penitentiary and they can cut a deal to do five. That happens all the time. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, Man, thanks for sharing that information. That is extremely valuable. I, I had no idea that was even the case. So that even that even gives me a, a little bit more fire, you know, um, whenever I do get the opportunity to go speak to high school kids and college students, because that's really, really what I want to do. That's, the, I mean, with with all of this this messaging that is in, in, ingrained in all the music that these kids are listening to, you know, it's all about popping bottles and partying, getting tables at the club, party, party, party. You're not cool unless you party. You're not cool unless you party. That's really what they're hearing. You know, they may not be saying those exact words. They may not be saying you're not cool unless you party. But the feeling that I think the music kind of uh, puts off, um, that that can be that that can be the um, uh, you know what I'm trying to say I, I can't even really put it into words but that uh, 
that that gives me more more fuel for that fire to convey that message you're you're playing you're playing with fire by choosing to party there is a, a whole world of possibilities of your life being completely ruined and, and changed forever um and i you know i, I want to do my best to help to help kids make better decisions and, and make make decisions that are different from the ones that i made um do I have, I, uh, there's very few things that I can say I regret. Um, I wouldn't regret all the uh, experiences and, you know, definitely those things have got me to where I am and maybe the person that I am, but there are some things that uh, came as a result of that stuff that I definitely regret and I would change. So um, any, any way that I can help kids make better decisions. So thank you for what you do for the kids. Thank you. You know, I don't want people to think that we're against people having a good time. And, you know, if as long as you're doing legally, partying legally and safely, you know, um, and responsibly. But imagine this you've worked your whole life to get good grades in high school, to get into college, and you, you've done super well in college. And now you're going to party and you're going to get caught. And all of that's going to go down the drain over one Xanax and ecstasy. Now you're going to try to tell people, please hire me. I'm a convicted felon uh, and a drug felon at that. And I know you're worried that I'm going to not be responsible and come to work. You've thrown it all away. And it's such a waste. And that's if you're lucky and don't look. Yeah. And that's when I tell them even, even, uh, even now more so than ever, become an entrepreneur <laughs> you're gonna have to work for yourself <laughs> figure out a way to create your own job bro because it's going to be very very difficult for sure so thank you thank thanks again judge walker for your time i really appreciate you being here and and uh sharing the valuable information um with my listening audience and and me a lot of stuff i didn't even know and um, i look forward to uh, all the things that we're going to get to do together to uh to help spread the message, man, and, and spread the love and spread the hope. Uh, and uh, all I like to say is to you, Hawk. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. You enjoy the rest of your evening, sir, and uh, we will have a uh, another conversation very soon. Absolutely. Thanks for all you cool. do. It's a pleasure being on your program. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Have a good night. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and, and listening to this episode with Judge Barnett Walker, the one and only. Thank you for being here once again, sir. You enjoy the rest of your night. Everybody else, take care. Take care of yourself. Be nice to one another. Be nice to yourself. Spread some love. Remember, we are always making a difference. It's just how are we making a difference? And with that, I'll say goodnight.